Teaching tonight comes from Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. And it's here that we read the following. About this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the about this time is during the Apostle Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and the way is the early Christian movement. So at about this time, as the Apostle Paul is ministering in Ephesus, there arose a great disturbance about this Christian movement, the way. And a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are actually no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. And the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and then they shouted instructions to him. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all of the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which has fallen from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have not, neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further that you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. And here ends our lesson. Uh, the Apostle Paul had founded the church in Ephesus, along with several other ministry companions, around 53 AD. And he appointed some elders to lead the congregation, but he himself left. This is on his second missionary journey, and he said, I've got other stuff to do elsewhere. But he promised them at that point, despite them begging him to stay, he promised them, I will come back. And sure enough, on the third missionary journey, not only does he come back, but he stays for a really lengthy period of time, about three years. And it's very effective. The church in Ephesus is, in fact, so successful that this has arguably become like the third most important uh, location in the Christian church at large now after Jerusalem and Syrian Antioch. Not everybody was totally in favor of what's going on here in Ephesus, though. Well, why? 
Well, in order to understand that, you got to look at verses 23 through 27 in our text today where this silversmith named Demetrius voices his concerns about what's going on. And you have to remember that Ephesus was the home of one of the world's seven great ancient wonders, the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was home to the Temple of Artemis. And the Temple of Artemis was more than just a fantastic, you know, backdrop and landscape of the city, but it actually was a main driver of the city's economy. So the Temple of Artemis, the footprint of it, we know, was about 350 by 150 feet. In other words, it dwarfed the Parthenon in Athens. It's about three times larger. Not only that, but uh, the silversmiths and the other craftsmen of the community of Ephesus made their living by fashioning these little shrines. And they were little shrines of the temple with little statues of Artemis on the inside of it. Artemis was the goddess of fertility in Greco-Roman, uh, the pantheon of, of their gods. And they would make these little shrines and people could purchase them either as dedications and offerings at the temple or as like souvenirs so that they could take them back home and worship Artemis from the convenience of their home. Uh, and in fact, archaeologists have suggested now that we have at least 30 remote satellite worship locations of Artemis around the ancient Mediterranean world. Well, this was big business, this shrine business. And not only that, but the priestesses of Artemis, who remember is a fertility goddess, they all also served as prostitutes. And therefore, the worship that took place in the temple of Artemis was massive business in the city. Now, okay, why, is, why does that matter? Well, you see, as Christian conversions are going up from Paul and the church in Athens, customers at the temple are going down. So the Christian conversion in Ephesus is directly negatively impacting the Ephesian economy. And therefore, uh, this Demetrius guy, who seems to be some kind of union head of the silversmiths, gathers a bunch of the craftsmen together, and he recounts to them, okay, this isn't working for us. We need to do something about this Paul character. And very interestingly, he does a good job of summarizing the Apostle Paul's message. What does he say? Uh, the phrase that was given to us here in verse 26 says, Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That seems to have become something of like an axiom or a mantra for what Paul was preaching from the outsider's perspective. And it's really good. Why? Because it's logical. If a god has to be fashioned by human hands in order to be worshipped, that god is not deserving of worship. It's like what he said back in Athens when he said, uh, a god that has to live in temples that are built by human hands is a god that is too small to be worthy of our worship. And so, anyway you slice it, we get this understanding that the Apostle Paul's early ministry is a consistent message of what? If you go back, remember, we spent two weeks on his sermon in Athens. And what was he preaching? Jesus and the resurrection against the backdrop. In Athens, it was an, uh, an idol that was listed as to an unknown God. But it's Jesus and the resurrection against the reality and the backdrop of your culture's idols. What that seems to suggest to us is that all gospel ministry is supposed to be about those things. Gospel ministry, even today, should primarily be, if it's going to be effective to the glory of God, it has to be about Jesus and his resurrection, and it has to be done in a manner that relates to the cultural, uh, societal idols of that day. And if somebody would say, okay, well, you know, that's way back when. They actually had these little fat, uh, fashioned idols made of metal, and uh, we don't have that today, and we don't have idolatry today, and we don't... If you've been coming here for any amount of time, you know we would say that's nonsense. Because within the like subtle 
idolatry of humanity, all of the polytheism of the ancient world exists. Uh, in other words, modern, secular, Western society really is not functionally that different from ancient Roman Empire paganism when you look at it in detail. And so what we see here is what happens when Christian witness threatens societal gods. Well, we find out what happens in verses 28 through 34 when a mob becomes enraged. Now, see, what happens is a large crowd gathers there in Ephesus at the amphitheater. And we know this is a an outdoor theater that holds about 25,000 people. It's probably not 25,000 people there, but it's a multi-thousand person crowd. All of their large public assemblies were held here, and this was the headline news of the day. Demetrius was inciting a rebellion, and he's got two speaking points. He's trying to defend the honor of our goddess, our regional goddess, what we're known for, the, the goddess Artemis. He's also trying to defend the economy that that temple is producing. And in doing so, he's creating this wicked, vicious mob. Now, if you don't know anything about mob mentality, it's actually a pretty fascinating psychological phenomenon. Um, if, if anybody wants a visual of this, if you've ever watched Simpsons before, you know that Simpsons is constantly parodying mob mentality. It's a bunch of people who don't know, even know why they're there, but they're really upset and they're all chanting about something and it can be changed by one charismatic leader just like that. Well, what happens in mob mentality from a clinical psychological standpoint is what it does is it disperses responsibility over a faceless group. And that's why people act irresponsible. You see, because in anonymity... Uh, the worst human traits and instincts start to manifest themselves because they don't have any personal responsibility. They can't be held accountable. This is one of the reasons why uh, when one-on-one -on -one conflicts ensue, very rarely does it ever end up in violence, but when you have groups on groups uh, who are conflicting with one another, that can escalate very quickly into violence. Why? Uh, number one, because you have this positive social feedback loop where your peers are like encouraging you on. But number two, there is no level of personal responsibility. This is exactly the psychology that happens in like gang-related violence. You say, well, okay, I've never been part of a gang, so this doesn't apply to me. No, not true. This, that mob mentality, that explains all social media and online behaviors. In other words, if you've ever participated in a comment section in an online article or on social media at all, you know what happens there? Large groups, mostly anonymous, without fear of any consequences, and it psychologically brings out the worst human traits because there's no individual personal responsibility. Whereas if you would say that thing that you said online to me right to my face, there might be consequences. If you say it online, what's the worst that can happen? Somebody's going to suspend your account? My point is, we're dealing with this mob mentality concept all the time, and we've got to figure out what it means. Uh, the details that are recorded for us here by Dr. Luke, who is the recorder of not only Luke's gospel, but the, the, the book of Acts as well, they're almost kind of comical. In fact, we read here in verse 32, the assembly was in uh, complete confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another thing, and most people didn't even know why they were there. In other words, it seems to be that, like, they saw an angry mob and they're like, oh, those people are angry. And, and you know what? I'm kind of angry, too, and I've got my own personal issues that I need to work out. And man, I have been injustice and I have been oppressed and, and somebody should pay for this. And I don't even really know why I'm here in the first place, but I'm just angry. 
You know, like everybody gets fired up. And where does it come from? It's, it's this unfettered, hyper-emotional public venting that is incited by one guy, Demetrius, who uh, is scared, he's immoral, he's threatened, and he wants to take it out on this missionary Paul as his scapegoat. Now, tell me that's not the work of Satan. Like getting people fired up and angry, causing people to feel really sorry for themselves, and then take out all their anger and all their pride on God. And when they can't get their hands totally on him, what do they do? They put their hands on people who bear his image and bear his name. Uh, in order to try to calm the mob down, uh, what they do is the, the mob identifies the fact that Paul is of Jewish ethnic descent, and so they look for an answer from the Jews, and the Jews at this time, they shove this poor soul named Alexander to the front and say, like, you say something to him. And he gets up there, and he tries to quiet him down and starts to reason with him, and nope, not having it. They don't want to listen. An angry mob doesn't want to listen. There's no, there's no incentive to listen, and therefore what they do is they just shout over the top of him for the next two hours. We're actually told that the Apostle Paul himself at this point wants to go out into the crowd, wants to go out into the mob and try to reason with them, but his friends, his Christian friends, actually don't let him. It's not only his Christian friends, it's his political allies. Uh, there's a verse here. In verse 31, it says, The officials of the province who were friends of Paul discouraged him from going out. These, are, these aren't even Christians. And there's this fascinating history in the Christian church that God sometimes allows these political allies to preserve and provide for and protect his people, the church. And sure enough, that's exactly what we see here. And this city clerk is the guy who steps to the, the forefront. And we find what happens in verses 35 through 41 where the city clerk's logic sort of subdues uh, this whole riot. Ephesus is essentially and ultimately ruled by a Roman proconsul. But the local assembly of people is what rule on local official matters. And every local assembly then had a city clerk who was not only the spokesperson for that people's assembly, but was also the liaison between uh, the local officials and the Roman authorities. And the city clerk goes out there and basically what he says is this nonsense needs to stop. It needs to stop because it's not accomplishing anything. If we keep up this, which looks like a rebellion, what the Roman authorities are going to say is you guys can't control your own people. What they are going to do is the military is going to enter in. We're going to suffer Roman occupation, which is going to mean more taxes, means we're going to lose our privileges and our rights and our status in this Roman province. And why? We've already established, we know the Apostle Paul has not literally stolen from the temple of Artemis. We know that the Apostle Paul has not literally blasphemed Artemis. He's promoting his own God, but he hasn't been blaspheming her business by name. And therefore, look, if you have any criminal charges that you want to press against him, that should be conducted in a normal, natural, healthy, societal, civilized manner in the legal system. The only thing that we're doing right now is the last thing that we want to do, which is putting us on the radar of the Roman authorities, and that is going to compromise our liberty here in Ephesus. And so stop this. It needs to end now. That's the end of it. Uh, the, the fascinating thing, one of the fascinating things about this account is I don't know any other that's really like it in the Bible or in the book of Acts. One of the things you notice, neither Paul nor any Christian speak at any point in this entire text. No Christian says anything. All we hear is society reacting to the Apostle Paul's ministry and his message about Jesus and the resurrection and how it relates to idolatry. In other words, this text 
is an account of the world's reaction to gospel ministry that threatens idols. And it's followed by God's sovereign hand in protecting his people through the governing authorities. There are all sorts of interesting things that we can learn from this, but I'm going to try to keep it to just two points here today. Okay? Two applications. The first application is this. We're going to look at how idols are both in one sense weak and in one sense strong, and they're always fashioned by humans. One, the idols are weak and they're strong, but they're fashioned by humans. Um, America's top sociologists and philosophers, individuals like uh, people you've, you've heard me reference probably a number of times before, Christian Smith and Robert Bella and Charles Taylor and James K.A. Smith and uh, a host of others. For years and years, what they have been suggesting is that uh, America, at the heart of American culture, is this thing called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And what that is, is it uh, means all of my life is ultimately about me. Now, you hear echoes of expressive individualism constantly in the way we talk. So, for instance, I jotted a couple down here. People, when people say things like, you be you, or be true to yourself, or follow your heart, or you need to find yourself, or I need to find myself, you know what that is? All of those are expressions of expressive individualism. Um, now, that concept, people did not talk that way several hundred years ago. That is relatively new, uh, a world, relatively new worldview in the grand scheme of world history. But it's not new in America. It's not new in Western civilization. And uh, in fact, I want to give you a couple examples of this. One example, in fact, for time's sake, I'll just keep it to one. Uh, Alexi de Tocqueville was a French uh, historian and statesman who kind of famously chronicled early colonial life in America. And basically, he came to America and wanted to examine the people and see what is so special about this new nation that we're hearing about uh, that is so prosperous and the people seem to be doing so well and it's rising so quickly in power. And he listed a number of different things. One of them was this thing called individualism. And he described it like this. In Democracy in America, he says, individualism is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his co-workers and withdraw into the circle of family and friends. Here's a key phrase. With this little society formed to his specific tastes, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. Now, again, I'm not going to share with you the other quotes that I had jotted down here, but you get the idea. At the heart of what he's saying and they would be saying is American people by and large tend to say my life is my own. It's my life is to do with whatever I want. I can make it about whatever I choose. And when you apply that to religion, what it ends up doing is you get to say I get to make God whoever I want him to be or her to be or it to be because it's my choice as to who my God is. Uh, we do this in all other walks of life. We tailor everything perfectly to exactly our specific tastes and preferences. So we build our homes exactly the way I want them. We build our cars exactly the way I want them. Our computers exactly the way I want them. Our playlists are our own. Our burgers, we go into place and they, they tell us they will prepare it the way that we will like it. Why? Because we want everything to be about us. And therefore, when we approach God, we say, I want my God to be this. And this is precisely the reason why people will talk to me, you know, as a pastor, and they'll say, well, I don't think God would ever blank, or I don't feel that a loving God should or could ever, 
you know, fill in the blank. And they base that on nothing other than their own personal feelings and opinions. You know what that is? It's not just expressive individualism. It's God's made by human hands. It's God's made by human imaginations that are figments of our human imagination. It's not real God's. It's, it's not a resurrected, objective, superlative God. What the Apostle Paul says here is gods that are made by human hands, or for that matter, just in human minds, are not really gods at all. See, it's the same thing. It's the same problem that was going on back there in Ephesus. The exact same thing is happening today. We want to make God exactly who we want him to be instead of letting him tell us who he actually is how he actually thinks and what he actually feels. We are determined to make our lives a product of our own will, our own hearts, our own fashioned by our own hands. And so we make things like uh, sex and money and power and politics and fertility and music and war and all the other gods that the ancients have. We've got just as, we've got the exact same ones today. We call them different things. We generally don't refer to them as gods. They function exactly the same way. Now, Paul said, these gods in one respect are powerless. Um, and what he means here, we've got to say what he means and what he doesn't mean. When he says these gods are no gods at all, um, he means that they're no gods in comparison to the true God, the almighty God. By comparison, they're nothing. He's not, however, suggesting that these, these gods are impotent and powerless. And you can see that they, these spiritual forces and these false gods, these idols, actually do have power just by looking at the mob. Just look at an angry mob of 2,000 people who are ready, willing, and able to pop the Apostle Paul's head off if they can lay their hands on him. If you want to see that people still are, uh, that idols are powerful still today, just threaten somebody else's idol in the slightest way, shape, or form and see if they don't lash out at you as though they are protecting the name of their, their one true functional God. Now again, what is an idol? An idol, the, the definition we try to work with regularly is it is a good thing, generally speaking, a good thing in our lives that we elevate to a position of an ultimate thing or a God thing in our lives because we think it gives us meaning and purpose and identity and security in the present and hope for the future. And I can tell you very clearly throughout my ministry the times when I realize that uh, I have touched on somebody's idol, when I have struck that nerve, are times where I have either wittingly or unwittingly sort of called them to repentance upon that idol. And I have about a dozen clear examples of, of this. These are times when people have lashed out at me in my ministry for touching on their idols. Uh, but instead of getting into specifics about other situations, let me just give you one that was personal to me. And I don't know that I've ever actually talked to you guys about this before because I wasn't ready to talk about it for a really long time. I was so angry. But about five or six years ago, uh, I ended up writing an article online. And I wrote it because there had been a string of about eight straight months of mass shootings here in the United States. And it's kind of this phenomenon that hasn't really been happening around the world elsewhere. It's primarily been in America. And so there's lots of questions and, you know, talking heads trying to figure out why exactly is this happening here. And, and so what I ended up doing is I ended up writing an article that was rooted in Philippians 2. And Philippians 2, if you don't know, is a section of the Bible that is generally titled Imitating Christ's Humility. And basically what it says, the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, that Jesus Christ, who himself actually is true God, actually forfeited that status in some respects. 
Uh, he who is true God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself lowly, taking the form of a humble servant. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is Jesus is true God up in heaven, and he's got all the rights, all the privileges, all the freedoms, all the power, might, and splendor of God himself, and yet he chooses to humble himself willfully to come all the way down to earth in order to do what? in order to substitute himself for us, in order to die in our place for our sins. And through that humbling servant process, he saves us. He saves humanity. And the Apostle Paul goes on to make this application. He says, look, he's now placed his same spirit inside of you. And if his spirit is inside of you, what that means you do is you take all the rights and privileges and freedoms that you have been blessed with. And my goodness, in America, our constitutional rights and our rights are so incredibly great and so incredibly blessed. There's so many. But what Paul is saying is, look, uh, take those rights and those freedoms and those privileges and be willing to lay them down if it might mean saving another life or blessing another human life. Now, what I did is I took what the Apostle Paul said and I said, okay, let's apply this to our current circumstances. And I said, look, I have zero issues with gun ownership. Zero issues. In fact, the vast majority, I think, of my, my family throughout history, most of them have probably been responsible gun owners at, at some point. So I have lots of friends who are responsible gun owners. I have no issues with any of that. I said, however, if it could somehow be proven, if it could be proven that something like tighter gun legislation would lead to the saving of lives and the stopping of tragedies, then so far as I can tell, within the spirit of Jesus Christ, who, again, by definition of new life in Christ, means we're more about lives than we are about anything else. We're more about life than we are about guns. We certainly would be willing to lay down, at times, privileges, rights, and freedoms if it might bring about blessing and saving of other human lives. Okay, that's all I said. It really wasn't about guns. It wasn't about free speech. It wasn't about, it was about Christians being willing to lay down their freedoms and their rights if it might save and bless somebody else. Fast forward. Um, I have never gotten so much hate mail in my life. In fact, uh, I had a couple different people actually write letters to two different district presidents asking that I be removed from public ministry. And I was so angry. I was so angry. I was so sad. And, you know, honestly, I knew that I had struck on something, but I didn't comprehend how so many Christians held so tightly to rights because I didn't see that instinct in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I'm not, there, there's certain uh, pieces of communication that I've never shared with anybody else including my own wife. But I'll tell you what, some of the communication that I got, I now realize, like firsthand, why some of the non-Christian world at times gets a little bit scared of Christians. Um, I, and I kind of slipped into a little bit of a dark place for a while, but what I realized is, look, I realized I had touched a nerve. An American self-interest, an American self-preservation, an American sense of self is extremely strong. And when push comes to shove, I'm not completely convinced that everybody who self-professes the name of Christ is, is necessarily willing to lay down their lives or necessarily even their uh, comforts and conveniences and rights if it might mean the blessing of other lives. Now, Here's what I'm not saying. Um, 
I am not saying that anybody is or is not a Christian, and that's not my job. That's not my position. Fortunately, that is not my role to do so. What I'm saying is I think uh, what I've experienced is a lot of people who are Christians who are in the throes of idolatry, and they're sometimes not even aware, about it, aware of it. And actually, the thing that I learned more than anything out of that entire experience is it exposed some of my own idol- idolatry. Why? Um, because if you would have taken some of those individuals who wrote those all caps direct messages to me and you would have plunked them down right in front of me and they would have said those things with that same tone right to my face, I'm not exactly sure what would have happened. Uh, I know a former version of me in a different life earlier on in a less sanctified state, I know where it probably would have ended in potentially some punches being thrown. Fortunately, I was at a different point in my life then and I'm fortunately at a different point in my life now. But see, that exposes to me my own idolatry. Because if somebody can disagree with me, even disagree with me uh, in a bad and unhealthy state, but, but disagree with me, what it exposed to me, if I would be willing to, you know, confront that person so aggressively, what it suggests is I have my own idol of approval, my own idol of wanting people to like me, my own idol of wanting to be regarded as whatever to such an extent that I'd be willing to, you know, really get angry and forceful with somebody who disagreed with me. In other words, what I learned from that whole experience is I had an idol to repent of too. Idols, Paul says, are nothing when you compare them to the true risen Savior, Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, idols are extraordinarily powerful and they're more powerful than any of our own flesh. And therefore, part of our goal and mission in our discipleship in this life is to throw off idols. You can't just live with them and you can't just walk away with them. You actually have to violently confront your own idols and you have to smash them. You can't just gently push them out of your life. You have to actively take measures to smash them, which is my second application point here, the cost of smashing idols. The Apostle Paul was almost killed. Why? Because the gospel movement had taken root in Ephesus and it was costing the city. It was costing the prostitutes. It was costing the craftsmen of the city. It was costing the tourism industry. And basically what you see here is people, the Christians, were smashing their own idols to the temple of Artemis. But you see that always is the case. Whenever you confront the evil spiritual forces that exist in this world, something's got to give. Something's got to break. Either those temples are going to get smashed or the Apostle Paul himself is going to get smashed, but it's always going to come at a cost. Idol smashing is entirely a contact sport. There's always going to be a a cost attached to it. So you have to brace yourself. If you or anybody that you love and want to minister to is going to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, it always, always, always comes by throwing off your idols. And in order to throw off your idols, there's always a cost. So how how do you get ready for that cost? How do you psych yourself up to make that sacrifice and pay those costs? Well, uh, how do you get motivated to fight? You've got to recognize one thing. Idols, while they have power, they're no gods at all in comparison to the true God, a resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is so powerful that he can not only conquer your grave, his grave, he can conquer your grave. He's so powerful that he can hold the whole world together. And the last thing you need is his love. How do you know that he loves you? Well, look what he did. When Jesus Christ came into this world, you know where he went? He voluntarily threw himself into a mob of idolaters. 
What do I mean? Well, the powers and the principalities, these smug, arrogant Jewish religious leaders, the insincere and insecure Roman political officials, uh, they wanted to kill him. Why? Because he, he dared. He dared to threaten their idol of power. And so what did he do? Did he walk up to him and punch him in the face? Not exactly. He went to the cross. And he suffered. And while they were crucifying him, he said things like, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. And then he died for them. And he died for their idolatry. And Jesus died for your and my idolatry just as much. And, uh, you know, when you see Jesus lovingly die for your disordered loves, when you see Jesus love you so much to die for not loving him fully, do you see the irony in that? He loves you so much that he dies for your disordered loves. It totally changes your perspective. And that is the only thing that can cause you to loosen your grip on the things in this world that you're perhaps clutching too dearly. Jesus took the ultimate mob, sin, Satan, and death, so that we don't have to be afraid when we go out into this world as ambassadors of truth and love. And make no mistake, that is exactly what we're doing in this world. We are ambassadors of truth and love. And if you are, in fact, a Christ-like ambassador of truth and love, sometimes this world is going to look at your love and think that you're weak. And sometimes this world is going to look at your truth and think that you are narrow-minded. But remember, Jesus took the ultimate mob so that you and I can move out in this world as ambassadors, confident, courageous ambassadors of truth and love and face all of the smaller mobs, even dying for the people who otherwise want to kill you. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight we thank you for diving headfirst into the ultimate mob, suffering in our place for our sins of idolatry. Help us now go into the world as ambassadors of truth and love no matter what it might cost us. And may your name be praised. Amen.